Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. I have found a passage of Scripture that speaks very powerfully about the concept of children, the ministry to children, the lessons children can teach us. And I want to take you to Matthew chapter 18. At the beginning of this chapter, it's very obvious that Jesus brings the issue of a child or children into play. And then one thing that maybe you have not noticed as you've read this passage before is how that theme of children carries on for several verses in this. We're going to work our way down from the story of of the disciples bickering with one another about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom, and Jesus responding by using a child as an illustration to teach them a lesson about their lack of humility. And then we're going to go down to a familiar parable about the lost sheep. A hundred sheep, one gets lost, the man leaves the sheep, the 99 and goes looking for the one. And Jesus does not break from the concept of the significance of children in all of those verses. It's all connected to our philosophy of children's ministry. That would be a good one to maybe mentally highlight or make a note of in your Bible because this is going to really set the tone for what I want us as a church to continue to focus on for the rest of my time here and I hope for the rest of the existence of the church here on this earth until the time we're raptured. Now, I want to begin reading in the first verse. And this account, as it stands alone, doesn't make as much sense as it does if you line it up with the account from Mark and blend them together. Then you get a little more clarity. But I'll do that for you. It says in the first verse, At that time the disciples came to Jesus and they asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom. Now, you notice that word, then. If you read in the account of Matthew what happened before this, and then in the previous chapter, and then start in this chapter, the word then is out of place. I mean, I would not come up and start a conversation with you not having previously been talking about anything, and then insert that kind of a a, a phrase into my question. Who then do you think you are? And you would say, were we talking? Did I miss something? 
But you have to go to Mark to pick up why that was inserted because even though Matthew doesn't cover what set up this question, we could read Matthew without the word then and be fine. But since it's there, we have to understand why it's there. So we know from the book of Mark that they were bickering about who would be the greatest in the kingdom, arguing, debating, and walking along the road. And Jesus, with the word of knowledge, evidently knew what they were doing. Jesus knows what you're doing, even when you think he doesn't know what you're doing. And so whenever they came to him, he said, what were you talking about on the road? Don't lie to Jesus. And they had to admit, well, embarrassingly enough, we were arguing about who would be greatest in the kingdom. And you also have to understand, before we're going to go any farther, that their concept of the kingdom was not our concept of the kingdom. We have a perspective on the kingdom that looks back on this. So when we talk about the kingdom, we probably don't think as much about the earthly sphere of the kingdom as we do maybe the kingdom come. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We probably don't think of the kingdom as often about being here right now as we do about when I enter into the kingdom of God. And it's not as though the kingdom of God is not here. It's just that's the way we kind of think of it. They, on the other hand, didn't have really any good solid concept of a kingdom in the far distant future. They were not thinking like modern day Christians that I want to die and, and, and in faith in my salvation and I want to enter into the kingdom and I want to live my entire life in God, I mean my eternity in God's kingdom. They, they, they were not thinking in those terms whatsoever. Their concept of kingdom surrounded them. They were under Roman oppression. That was a kingdom. Jesus came and they believed he was the Messiah, so therefore they believed he came to be their king and he was going to lift the yoke of Roman authority off of their necks and he was going to set up his kingdom and they were expecting it really quick. The man is here He's going to take the throne, he's going to deliver us, and we're going to have his kingdom. And with, with respect to that concept, they were thinking now, when he sets up his kingdom, which is any day now, and we're following along as his trainees, his protégés, then which one of us gets the highest rank? in this soon-to-come kingdom. And that's what they were thinking about. Things were, they thought things were getting ready to change immediately, and they were vying and jockeying for a high position in that kingdom they believed was just around the corner. So they were walking along the road, and they were thinking, when this kingdom really gets rolling, and we can just sense it's any day now, I think, one would say, He's probably going to choose me for a really important position because I can tell when he looks at me, he likes me better than the rest of you. And that only made the others argue back. Are you kidding? He's looking at you like he doesn't understand you. He loves me. And this was the ridiculous, childish nonsense 
literally that they were doing. They were arguing about who was better, who was most important, who was going to get the big chair in the kingdom. And so when Jesus asked them that, they were humiliated and embarrassed. And he said, unless you become like a little child, you won't even enter the kingdom. Now Mark brings that all into perspective in the sequence of events. And then they said, well, who then? Who then is going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Now, even though Matthew has this all out of a little, a little bit out of the, the flow from, from Mark, let's pick up in the second verse. So he called this little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. I want to continue reading the entire passage, and then we'll go back and pick up on pieces of that as necessary. If one causes one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble, it'd be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come. But woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter in life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. Now, you see, he's still on the issue of children. He hasn't left that concept yet. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. Depending on which translation you have, you may or may not have verse 11 there. Some versions, you may have one, goes from verse 10 to verse 12. And you're sitting there thinking, who took my verse 11? That's because in the discovery of more recent manuscripts, that's not necessarily there. So some of the more recent translations don't put that there, but they have to keep the verse flow to match everybody else, so they just eliminate verse 11. Now, it doesn't cause any problems for being there. This is just a very technical thing. Was it really there in the original manuscripts or not? doesn't make any difference. But the content of it doesn't do any damage to the context. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Verse 12. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety and nine on the hills and go look for that one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he, he is happier about that one sheep than about the ninety and nine that did not wander off. And at this point, we think he's changed subject matters, don't we? Except in the 14th verse, he says, In the same way your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish, so he brings it right back to children's ministry. Again, he has not left this. He's just got a lot to say about it. And if he has a lot to say about it, I think we have to understand what he is trying to tell us. So here is how I have boiled this down to understand what Jesus wants to know about the importance and the significance of children in the kingdom. The first thing I see from this passage is He wants us to understand the concept of humility 
by identifying with the children. So the disciples were bickering over who would considered, be considered to be the greatest, and their behavior was so pitiful, so immature, so self-serving, that when Jesus asked them what they were discussing along the road, they became embarrassed at their behavior. Christ was not pleased with it, and they were embarrassed by it. This kind of attitude would not serve them well as disciples whatsoever. So Jesus, in taking disciples and turning them into the kind of people he wanted them to be, had to take opportunity when it arose to correct wrong attitudes. And right now was a perfect time to do this. This, guys, is what he was saying, is not going to work. If you're going to follow me, you're going to be my disciples, we're going to have to get rid of this self-importance that you are carrying. So he takes this child, and he stands him in the midst of his disciples and by his side. And they say, well, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? And he draws this attention to their child, and he says, unless you become like little children, you will not enter the kingdom. Stick with me now. What does it mean to become like a little child? That's key to understanding this passage. I would say it's very likely that we default to thinking of maybe the most admirable traits of a child and concluding what we need to do is become childlike in these very admirable traits. The trouble is, I started trying to think of what admirable traits kids have, and I came up short. Now, let's be fair. I can throw a couple of them out there that we could probably say, yeah, that's, that's good for a childlike. But the list of bad traits was long. The list of good traits was a short list. Tell me a good trait of children. Just shout it out to me. Give me one. They're truthful. Who said that? To what age are they truthful? That's the problem I had. Sometimes, to a certain age, they are. Then they lose that somewhere. They have lost the truth for the rest of their life, unless God helps them find it back. Give me another one. Trusting? That's a good one. That's one that we like, trusting as a child. Energetic. Whoo, man, are they? That's good. So th there's a few. Uh, trusting. Uh, faith, childlike faith. That would be a good one. Now, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time here, but I'm going to predict if I did, we would run out of good attributes real soon. Now, we want to talk about the bad ones. And these show up from the littlest, don't they? Selfish, demanding. And so as we start thinking about the traits, if Jesus is talking about you've got to become like a little child, the handful of traits we can find that might be good, such as the trait of being trusting, uh, being childlike faith, being 
And then all of a sudden we thought, well, what else is there? Cute? They don't keep that very long either. And if I take those that I can think of, it doesn't even fit the context. If these men are arguing about who's going to be the greatest, and he said, if you people just had more faith like a child, it'd be all well. That doesn't, the context doesn't work. If you people just be more trusting like a child, the context doesn't work. But there's a secret to what Jesus was saying here. The fourth verse unlocks this. He doesn't say, take on the trait of a little child. Now, let me, can I say real quick before I get to the fourth verse, how many of you are already with me? There's a difference between childlike and childish, okay? We understand? And he wants them to be childlike in some way, and we're going to unravel that in a minute, but they were being childish. Childish is no good. Sometimes childlike can be good. So he says in the fourth verse, as he explains how he wants them to be like a child, he says, therefore, for whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. There it is. It's not a characteristic. It's a status. If you take on and identify with the status of a child, then you have a chance. But if you don't identify with the status of this child, you won't even get into the kingdom. Now, that applies to every Man and woman here today, this is speaking to you, not just the disciples. If you do not take on the status of a child, you probably don't have a chance even to get into the kingdom, much less be ranked when you get there. So what's it mean about the status of a child? You have to understand the culture. What was the status of a child? There in that context, when Jesus pulls a child over to him and tells them, if you take on the status of this child, you'll be okay. The child had no rights. The child was not considered in any serious matters. You have to be able to take on the status of a child where you understand you don't have any rights. Status is conferred upon a child by society. It's not just inherent. It's what society deems it to be. And oftentimes, societies do not give children a lot of rights. They're not looked upon as leaders. They're not given the best seat in the house. You cannot run for president in the United States as a child. There's limitations. And even whenever we get together in the family, the children always get to sit at the children's table with the little seats and the makeshift arrangement. And then the children get to the age where they feel like they're old enough to be with adults and they still have to sit at at the children's table. So the children are relegated to another level. And Jesus said very simply... You've got to learn to identify in the kingdom with what it means to be willing to sit at the little kid's table. And the Bible talks about whenever you come into a room, don't go and take the highest seat in the place. Take the lowest seat. It's a humility thing. It's understanding that like a child that has been pushed to the back by society, you're unimportant, you're insignificant, We have to understand that as a Christian, we have to take the last place. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Electing to humble ourselves, then we'll be exalted. And the disciples were not doing that. They thought themselves to be pretty self 
important. And Jesus said, you're not at all like this child. You have to understand that you consider yourself to be the least in the room. Not the most, the least. Not the most important. Not the greatest. But we can walk around in the kingdom like a bunch of peacocks, can't we? We can strut in the kingdom. And nothing is more detestable and distasteful to me than to see people in the kingdom who think they're self-important and strutting. Except the only thing that rivals that is the people who follow that and applaud it and encourage it. Humility is what God really puts his approval on. Not the high rank, not the self-importance, but the concept of John the Baptist. As he wrapped it up like this, he must increase, I must decrease. I can't be somebody in the kingdom. You have to be happy to be nobody in the kingdom. And I want to tell you that's tough to deal with every day because we judge the importance of ourselves by how people applaud us and accept us and congratulate us. But can we get to the point of being nothing, made nothing, abased, being humbled? That the only place it really matters where we get any accolades, get any congratulations, is in God's house. It doesn't matter what people think. What does God think of me? That's all that matters. Now, the second thing that Jesus addresses concerning children, what they can teach us, is honor, respecting the children. Verse 5 says, And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Once again, you have to remember the status of the child. They were not important in society. Christ does not expect us to identify with children if he himself did not first and foremost identify with children. And he did identify with children. He identified so much with them that he said, whoever welcomes this child welcomes me. That is complete identification with children. And he is challenging us. Do you identify with children? Do you honor and respect them since you identified with them? You understand how important it is to honor them. I don't think we honor children as much as we ought to. I think we spend more time corralling them and maybe snarling at them. We don't do a lot of honoring. I can tell you, I promise you, I agree with you, They can push your buttons like no other creature on the face of the earth. But we cannot let that keep us from honoring them. We can't. It's incumbent upon us to do that because Jesus said we have to. The question is, how do we treat the children that are in our care? How do we treat the children under the trust Of this church. Do we see Christ. When we see the kids. Do you see the the face of Jesus. And the kids we bring out. 
Do you understand the value Christ places on children? And do we treat them with due respect? Jesus demands we honor and respect the children because he finds himself very much entwined in the issue of how we treat kids. He responds and says, that's how you would treat me. Because I am meek, and I am lowly, and I made myself of no reputation. And those people on earth in those days that did not see Jesus as being an important person, a dignitary, a royalty, a king, they despised him, they rejected him. No wonder Jesus understood what children were going through. I remember when I first visited this church, we got married in 1977, and it was shortly after we were married. We came to this area because we came to visit Anne's aunt. Anne's uncle at that time was a custodian at this church. And he came down and unlocked the church and showed us around. I remember as he took us through the foyer out there, and at that time there was a drinking fountain. And Anne's uncle said, They rip this off the wall all the time. This horde of kids come running through here. They rip it off. I said, what do you do? He said, we put it back on. They weren't angry. It's just the price you pay for trying to reach kids that are not fully developed yet. It didn't matter. And he said, the pastor's philosophy is they'll tear it up, we'll repair it. No big deal. That was an admirable philosophy of a man that understood the the attitude of Jesus Christ toward children. If children are an inconvenience to the church because they get the place dirty, because they drool on the pews, because they leave a little trash around, because they make noise during service, if I've got uh, adults that are scowling because these children are upsetting the service and they shouldn't be here, you're going to have to get saved, my friend, because they're messy. Children are messy. But Jesus said you've got to learn how to honor them. Get by the inconvenience of the children and learn that whether the way you're treating them is the way you would treat me. I understand how testing and trying they can be. I understand sometimes we have children in here that just can't sit still and and sometimes people ignore them and sometimes they can't ignore them. But I want to tell you, Jesus would rather have them here than to have somebody go up and, and discourage them and they never come back. I thought we used to sing a song that said, Just as I am. Does that just apply to adults? Or can we make allowance for kids that don't quite understand what it's all about to be in church yet? But we understand this much. Jesus wants us to honor them and respect them. Number three. I think in this passage, Jesus speaks to us about influence. He says in the sixth verse, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Setting the example for children is the important point Jesus wants to understand here. I don't think we take into consideration often enough the influence we have on others when we act out. It's almost like we think we live in a bubble. We think we live in complete isolation. And we think we're hurting only ourselves if we're hurting anybody. 
and we're hurting nobody else, and it doesn't make any difference what we do to ourselves. It's our business. But I want you to consider this. Somebody's watching you. You're granting somebody else permission to do exactly what you are doing. You are never doing what you are doing in complete isolation. Somebody will discover and somebody will follow. You are granting permission to those who are watching you. You are leaving footprints wherever you go. And somebody is going to be tracking right behind you. I saw the most disturbing video yesterday just put out by a children's advocacy group. It could have been made for this church service today. But it was just a a video about 30 seconds long, 45 seconds long, a minute long maybe. And it just scene after scene of a little child following an adult and doing everything the adult did. Didn't make any difference if the father was screaming at the mother and threatening to hit her. The little boy was right behind him screaming at his own mom and threatening to hit her. Didn't make any difference if the woman was having a temper tantrum and slamming the phone down. The little daughter was right there with her own phone slamming it down. You know, you know from experience how many times you've seen Your child do something and you say, where did they get that? And you discover they got it from you. You just didn't think they was watching. But they're watching. One of the strongest desires of a child is to be an adult. How many of you remember that as a child? Can you remember back that far, some of you? Don't you remember how important it was to be an adult? That was everything we lived for is just to grow out of that pint-sized body and be an adult. It's what we wanted to do. So therefore, everything that little boys and little girls see that makes them think if they do, they're acting like an adult, they're wanting to do that. Little boys will put on their dad's shoes because it makes them feel like dad. Little girls will dress in mom's dresses and put on mom's jewelry and mom's makeup because it makes them feel like mom. That's what they want. They want to be like an adult. But if the adults are modeling foolishness before them, that's what the children put on. Ann and I were watching a documentary on bull riders two or three nights ago. It's an extremely dangerous sport. To my surprise, it said that it is the fastest growing sport in the United States. I did not know that. Every bull rider, according to this documentary, knows they're going to be injured. It's not if I get injured, it's when. Every bull rider that has been riding for any time at all will have a broken bone or multiple broken bones. And one fascinating thing I picked up from this documentary is they all are keenly aware of how deadly it is. And they have come to grips with the concept of death. And the bull riders are saying, we understand it's deadly, but we're not afraid of death. It's okay. You can't be afraid. You've got to get up there and ride that bull. If they kill you, so what? You can't be afraid. You've got to ride the bull. And, of course, my question is, why? But I'm not going to go there. But here's the point. Because I saw a clip in there when one of the bull riders was down there on his knees and hugging his little boy and his family. And they're very family 
God-centered people, uh, very, very God-centered people. It's, it's uh, God's very, and church and religion and Christianity, very much a part of that whole culture. And then whenever they were celebrating and having a, a party time and, and a get-together and a to-do, they had a little mechanical bull, a little pint-sized mechanical bull that children could get on to start them to writing. Now, I'm, my mind is working totally on another level from this documentary. I'm hearing the words of the bull rider that's saying, I've come to grips with death. I'm not afraid of death. I see them training their children in one of the most dangerous sports. And then my mind says, yes, but are you okay if your son dies? Is that okay with you? Have you come to grips with that when you have to stand by that coffin because it got stomped, killed by a 2,000-pound bull, and you're going to say, well, that's just the way it is. You've got to ride a bull. Are you okay with that? And I'm thinking to myself, maybe I could get to the point if bull riding was important to me where I could convince myself I'm not afraid to die. I'm doing what I want to do. I love what I'm doing. And if I die doing it, I'll just die happy. But when you bring my children into the picture and say, therefore, if my children do what I'm doing and it kills them, so what? That's the price you pay. I can't go there. See, I can't process this. Now, I'm not talking about bull riding anymore. I'm talking about all the nonsense that adults do that you think you can get away with it. It's okay with you. You've come to grips with it. You realize your lifestyle is going to cost you something, but that's okay because you've come to grips with it. What about your children? Does it matter to you at all about your children? I'm so sick and tired in Christianity of people trying to figure out what their liberty in Jesus Christ is with no wisdom associated with defining their liberty. Paul says, all things for me are lawful, but not everything is expedient. And we have to live under that philosophy in our Christian life. We understand, yeah, you can probably do a lot of things and get away with it. But is it really beneficial? Is it really necessary for you to do it? And are you willing to lead somebody else in the path you're going and they don't make it? Is that okay with you? I don't understand how we can set a pattern of danger and risk for our children and be happy that we said, hey, I did it, I got away with it, I recommend you try that. I find myself as a parent backing away from those things that are risky, not only because I don't like pain, but because I don't like to watch my children suffer. There are certain things I just don't want to do because I don't want to lose my children. When you've got a child, when you've got somebody in your circle of influence, it causes you to rethink what you do in life. Now, whether that's a motorcycle, a speedboat, swimming, is immaterial. I want to talk to you about the spiritual things. You think you can party hard and get away with it, but you want your children to do that? You think you can sneak off and have a beer once in a while, that's okay. You want your children to do that? you got a secret habit that you've got an addiction, and that's okay with you. You want your children to have that? Because when you bring children into focus, suddenly the things you think you can do and it doesn't matter take on a whole new dimension because I don't want my children hooked in things that they can't get out of. I cannot get out of my brain. The man in my church in California that got angry with me 
because I prayed a dedicatory prayer over a child, and I said, Lord, don't let even the taste of wine pass the lips of this child. And he, he was so angry with me. How dare I imply that wine, drinking wine was a sin? I didn't say it was a sin. I was going at this from the perspective of being a careful parent. And this man who was so angry at me, at the very moment that he was dressing me down for daring to even pray public like that, his own daughter was in the streets of Fresno, homeless and alcoholic. And I can't put those two concepts together. Because everything might be lawful, but everything is not necessary. Everything is not beneficial. And as a responsible person who is having influence over children, there might be no logical reason why I can't do certain things. Except my concern is for the children who may not do as well. It's like jumping over a dangerous creek. Maybe I'm big enough to do it. But if my child thinks they can do it and they can't make it, it's going to cost me more. I have to take, I have to take children into consideration in my lifestyle. And then whenever we read about the seriousness of causing a child to stumble, read in this passage, you may think it doesn't matter what you do to your body you may not care what you do to your spiritual man you may not care what offends God you'll deal with that in prayer later you may not care if you're ultimately going to hell you don't care you'll take the risk but let me remind you what it means to set the kind of an example that causes a child to stumble Jesus says woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble such things must come but woe to the person through whom they come if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and throw it into the fire of hell. And what Jesus has said there is the seriousness of causing a little child to stumble. First of all, it'd be better for you to have a concrete block tied around your neck and thrown into the ocean and drown than to cause a little one to follow your stupid decisions and them to fall and them to stumble because you gave them permission. It would be better. There's a woe pronounced against people who set the stumbling block. Woe to him. And third, he says, you just might as well think of it this way. How difficult is it for you to make conservative choices in behalf of the children? You say, well, I can't do that. I've got to live my life. No, Jesus said you don't have to live your life. What you have to do is you have to get so serious about guarding the children and setting the right example for the children, that if it means you have to cut off your hand to keep from doing wrong, cut it off, because it's better to you suffer like that than for you to pay the penalty for having offended a little child. He said it's so severe, you'd be better to pluck your eye out if it kept you from sinning than to suffer the consequences for having did what you did and some child follow you. It's serious. But the point is this, it doesn't matter what it takes, whatever it takes, 
whatever sacrifices you have to make, whatever personal inconveniences you have to endure for you to live the kind of life that does not set traps for your children who will follow you, it's infinitely better for you to make those sacrifices and those inconveniences than to do something that will ultimately cause you to lose your child. Number four, Jesus speaks to us about guardianship. This is my, one of the largest points, but also brings me very close to the end of my sermon. Would you hang with me? Point number five is a two-minute point. Guardianship, protecting the children. Jesus said, see, you do not despise one of these little ones. I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. So what do you think? And he tells the story of the parable of the hundred sheep leaving the nine and going after the one, said in the same way your heaven, Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. Now from that passage, I take the concept of guardianship, protecting, taking care, watching out for the children. The child Jesus called to himself represented all children of that culture. They were basically helpless. When Herod learned that the Christ child was born, the king of the Jews was born, he sent out his crew because it had been a while since the birth and they didn't know exactly when he was born. So just to be safe, he said, go out and slaughter every male child under two years old. And in the process, we will kill the king and I'll have no competition. Are you grasping how brutal that is? Can you imagine you with your child in your arms and today's army coming into your house, crashing your house, grabbing your child and murdering your child just simply because the king says so? Can you imagine that? This is horrendous. This is unthinkable. We cannot process the horror of this. Now we have an equivalent to Herod today. We have an equivalent to this infanticide today. These children in Herod's kingdom were powerless to defend themselves. The only way that Jesus got defended is because his parents watched out for him. His parents had the wisdom and the foresight to fly to Egypt. That's the only reason that he was spared because somebody looked out for that child. But for those who were caught unaware, For those who did not make preparation for whatever reason, that child was not protected. That child died. He was murdered. More disturbing than Herod's death sentence. Today we have what is called abortion. The culture calls it choice. They call it reproductive rights. The Bible calls it murder. Abortion has been repackaged and promoted under the banner of a woman's rights over her body. That baby's body is not her body. That's two individual bodies. Abortion has been debated on the talk circuit, glorified and normalized in the entertainment entertainment industry, mainstreamed through the medical field, and now is offered as a casual and benign form of birth control. So what? 
You're pregnant? Abort them. Somewhere in this sick and sordid mess, society has been brainwashed into forgetting we are talking about real human babies. Abortion proponents refuse to use that terminology. They don't want to talk about babies. They prefer fetus. They prefer tissue. They prefer uterine contents. They even one has been noted to say this, I'm getting rid of this parasite in my body. Dear God, that hurts me to the bottom of my heart. This baby inside the body is not a parasite. It's not an unwanted child occupying. Even someone has called it a womb squatter. They're there, but they're not welcome there. Can you understand what is going on in this culture today? They file their whole conversation under the heading of women's health. That doesn't make any sense to me. Cancer is about women's health. Hepatitis is about women's health. This is not a disease. This is a baby. And they're using swapping terminology to try and reprogram how people think about infanticide, about baby murder. They refuse to say murder. You know what they call it? Pregnancy termination. It's sanitary, isn't it? Uterine evacuation. Isn't that nice? You realize that the California high school expression for a girl they know goes and gets an abortion, you know what they call it? She got hooverized. Taking the name from the vacuum cleaner. It's just a joke to them. What happened to her? Where she did it? She's getting hooverized, getting that baby sucked out. That is how the younger generation is processing this heinous, horrendous process. It's just a joke to them. And here's one that might possibly still shock this jaded 21st century culture. Post-birth abortion. Do you understand what that is? Abortion refers to the child is still in the womb. But now we're talking about post-birth abortion. The baby is born. Now what do you do with it? We didn't want it. Post-birth abortion means now the baby's on the table and the doctor comes in and kills the child right there before everybody. They're moving to try and legalize that. It doesn't have to be the survivor of an abortion process. It's just, let's just let the baby be born. It's another alternative to abortion because abortion is so dangerous. So let's just let the baby be born and take the mother away. We'll kill the child after she's gone. They're looking to enhance that. They're looking to give that right to the doctor, legislate it, make it legal. Does that make your blood boil? Are you uncomfortable with that in any way, shape, or form? The bottom line is the pro-choice, pro-abortion crowd has worked tirelessly to make the murder of unborn children this boring topic no of no particular significance to every new generation. They will laugh at people like me who will even dare mention what it really is. They will make me look like I'm some artifact from years ago that I don't really, I'm not really with it. They mainstreamed and normalized and sanitized abortion to the point that multitudes don't think about it as murder. They think convenience. They think personal right. They think freedom of choices. Do you realize that in the United States, 54 and one half million babies have been murdered in the womb since Roe v. Wade? 
Today in the U.S., there's a baby murdered in the womb every 30 seconds, 137 per hour, 3,300 a day. Do you realize for all the babies that have been aborted since Roe v. Wade, we have lost 64 times more babies through abortion than we have in all of the wars the United States has ever been involved in, all the American casualties from all the wars. 64 times the loss. And they're out there with bleeding hearts saying, we don't want to go to war, we don't like the casualties, we don't like the senseless loss. And they're not screaming for the millions of babies that are being slaughtered. And before this service is over, many more will enter into the kingdom. It goes on every minute. Who's going to protect the children? I understand a nation that mourns and weeps when a gunman opens fire on a school and randomly kills innocent children. I don't understand the same nation that celebrates the freedom and the right to kill babies in the womb. We've been lulled to sleep. We've been deadened in our conscience to the shocking travesty. We've granted the pro-abortionists their rights to commit murder while we turn our heads. But Jesus told us the importance of children. We understand how God feels about children being abused. We understand how God feels about the heritage of this world who kill their children without conscience just to make life more comfortable and more convenient for themselves. It's our duty to guard the children. They can't defend themselves. My question is this. If the Christian man and the Christian woman is not going to work against the abortion industry and against the politics that supports the abortion industry, who is going to do it? The answer is nobody. We've been given a clear mandate from our founder in the illustration of the sheep to guard them, take care of them, protect them. My final point. In the same passage I just read about the sheep, there is another theme that rides through that. And that is the theme of reaching the children, leaving the 99 and going to the one and reaching the children. Ministry. And that last verse brings it back to the context of children. In that same way, your heavenly Father is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. He's not willing that any should perish. You probably know children who are perishing. It's not the heavenly Father's will that they should perish. The biggest opportunity before our church is the children. The professional People are not lined up at the door waiting for a seat at Westside. The millennial generation is not lined up at the door waiting for a seat at Westside. You can invite them. They don't care. We've seen children lined up at the bus hoping for a seat to come to Westside. And we leave a group behind, standing on the corner, who says, I want to go to church. We don't have room. The children are the harvest field. They're eager to come. If we invite them, they come. We can put out the posters. We can get the kids. We just can't get them here. We can't handle them after we get here because we don't have enough help. 
We could fill up children's shirts on Sunday morning, except we can't get them here. Sometimes you got to leave the 99 and take the inconvenience of going and getting somebody and bring them because they said, I want to be there. I believe I'm safe saying God will judge every church for the degree of their compassion for children. Westside has a beautiful history of reaching out to children. But we can't close the books because of what we've done. It has to be who we are still today. When I came here, I met many, many, many people who came up and told me, Pastor, we used to ride the bus. We used to drive the bus. We used to do visitation for the bus. We used to do the bus. We used to do the bus. Every case, we don't do that anymore. I understand. I understand. Sometimes we get to the point where that's not quite what we can do. We've got to have another generation step up. We've got to have somebody that understands how important, vitally important it is to reach the children because the other generation understood. But if you can't ride the bus anymore, give me your money. I'm serious. You're sitting on some money. You can't do it anymore. You can't take it. Your nerves are not. I understand. Give me your money. We need help. If you don't have any money, give me your prayers. Do something. But everybody, get your focus. We've got to get focused on the children. Every other ministry we do goes down from there. Every person is important. Every adult is important. Every teenager is important. But the chances of reaching people are the highest with the children. And so you go for the highest first. Then you do the ministry to the rest of them. And if everybody had that passion, if we knew who we were as West Side, that we have church on Sunday, but it's not just about having on church on Sunday to please people who are showing up. It's about evangelism. It's about reaching out. And uh, people saying, well, what are we doing to reach out? We're trying to reach the children. That's who we are. That's what we're doing. That's what God wants us to do. Now I close my sermon with just a little update report. We are crippling along in children's church ministry with broken equipment and severely outdated decor. It's going to take thousands of dollars to raise this to the level that the kids deserve. The kids deserve honoring the kids, not giving them our hand-me-downs, not giving them our broken stuff, not giving them our leftovers, but honoring the kids, believing in them, believing that ministry in them pays off. It's going to take thousands of dollars to raise this to the level that kids deserve. They don't deserve makeshift equipment and outdated resources. The mandate of Christ compels us to make reaching children and ministering to children a priority of evangelism. And I pray this sermon transforms you permanently. I pray God puts the burden of ministry to children on your to, to the children on your heart as a permanent prayer request, as a permanent and ongoing mission you will support with your finances. 
Believing that effective children's ministry will not only fill this church, it'll fill the kingdom. It will send workers into the ministry. It will send them into the mission field. It will create missionaries. It will create pastors. It will create Sunday school teachers. I'm praying you are so moved by the word of Christ, you never look at children's ministry the same again. That you see it as the very heartbeat of the gospel. That you see the face of child as the face of Jesus. Bow your heads.